Hello and welcome to episode number 159 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Hakan Erzolu, Professor of History and Director of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Central Florida and the author of The Decline of the Ottoman Empire and the Rise of the Turkish Republic, Observations of an American Diplomat, 1919 to 1927, and that is published by Edinburgh University Press. The book focuses on Admiral Mark L. Bristol, U.S. High Commissioner in Istanbul, so the top U.S. diplomat in the country, from 1919 to 1927. This was a tumultuous transition period marked by mass migration, continued ethnic religious conflict and displacement as the Ottoman Empire collapsed and the Republic of Turkey was founded as a nation-state in 1923. The book is based on tens of thousands of primary documents from US and Turkish archives, including Bristol's official correspondence to the State Department, as well as private letters and memoirs. Compared with many European diplomats during the period, Bristol had a relatively pro-Turkish, pro-Muslim perspective. His observations and recommendations helped shape US policy in the Ottoman Empire and also helped lay the foundations of the strategic partnership between Turkey and the US during the Cold War years. Before we crack on with the interview and address all that, let me just remind you here that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Let me also flag up here that we've just started an Instagram account as well, so do follow on there. That's at turkeybooktalkpodcast. Remember that you can also support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of now 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. And if you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview by email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Hakan Erzolu. And I started by asking him to sketch out Admiral Wilson's life before he was appointed U.S. High Commissioner in Istanbul in 1919. Prior to his appointment to Istanbul, he had a very successful Navy career. He was a, a Navy man that was stationed in Far East, Eastern Pacific shores of Great Britain, Guantanamo Bay, and it also fought in Spanish-American War on the shores of Cuba. He served in the North Atlantic fleet. He also patrolled the shores of China. So he was all over the world in terms of his uh, Navy appointment. 
And as the book talks about, in 1919, he becomes senior naval officer for Eastern Mediterranean, meaning the Ottoman territories. What we need to know before uh, his appointment, before coming to Istanbul, is that he did not have any training whatsoever of uh, diplomatic missions. But it was the tradition of State Department in the United States that when in need, they would tap into a Navy to bring in admirals to serve a very short time period as diplomats in different parts of the world. What is interesting about Bristol is that this short term did not apply to him. He served in very critical part of the world eight years from 1919 till 1927. So he came to Istanbul in 1919, appointed to Istanbul in 1919. And obviously that's a very interesting period because we're talking about post-First World War. Istanbul was under occupation. Turkey's War of Independence was just beginning in Anatolia. And he was sent to Istanbul at this very sensitive time. It's probably interesting to note as context, obviously, that the American Red Cross had a branch in Constantinople. And that became one of the headquarters for Southern Europe in 1920. And there were hundreds of foreign humanitarian and missionary workers that were dispatched to the area at this time to handle the big humanitarian crises that uh, resulted from the end of the First World War and the huge migration waves and also obviously the ongoing instability across what was left of the Ottoman Empire. So um, U.S. interest at this time focused a lot on relief, as I understand it, and that was very often aid to Christians and other minorities Uh, And that obviously was mirrored a lot by uh, the Europeans and how they approached the region. I just wonder, how did Bristol transcend that perspective? Did he transcend it? Just where does he fit into that whole picture? Well, he was sent uh, to Istanbul to guard the U.S. interests. The interest in the Ottoman Empire starts in the first part of the 19th century. But after the 1830s, U.S. already established uh, missionary activities and churches and evangelist activities in the region in the Ottoman territories. What is interesting is that once these people arrived at the Ottoman Empire or Ottoman territories, they settled with the local population. They were trying to convert the local population, but they were not very successful converting Jews and Muslims. So they mainly were stationed in Armenian and Greek communities. They were more successful in converting them. Now, this becomes very important distinction because Bristol, in his reports to Washington, says that the reports that are received from the region comes from those missionaries who were stationed and lived with the Christian population. So they were very sympathetic towards the suffering of the Christian population. And then he counters, that's that's why he becomes a very controversial figure, is that he says this is only one side of the picture and the other side needs to be shown. The way that he showed that side of the picture is quite interesting. As we know that the United States and the Ottoman Empire cut diplomatic relations in 1917. So when Bristol arrived, there was no diplomatic relations between the two countries. When he arrived, he tried to establish a relationship with the Ottoman Empire. Although the more he studied the minority issues, he was aware of the misadministration of the Ottoman authorities. And so he despised the Ottoman administration. 
But he also despised the the reports that he gathered as one-sided. So in Istanbul, he actually led two levels of bureaucracy. He was a a civil diplomat, so to speak, under the title of high commissioner. But at the same time, he was an admiral who was in charge of the fleet that are patrolling the Black Sea, uh, the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea surrounding the Ottoman territories. So his sources of information were wide range. Not only he used the missionaries on the field or the agents, so to speak, that came and gave him information about what was happening on the ground, but also he used his ship captains. He sent them to different parts of the uh, empire, the port cities like Sinop, Trabzon and the Black Sea or Samsun or or Smyrna and Izmir. And he asked them to get on land and collect information about the situation and report it to them. So he collected them and then he came to his own conclusions accordingly and he sent them to Washington. He never shied away stating his opinion about the missionaries who tried to somehow manipulate the public opinion, as he called it. Uh, There are some reports, for example, that he blames misinformation from these uh, missionaries coming to United States and giving uh, lectures in the churches of the states. Uh, He informs Washington, the State Department, that many of these activities contain misinformation about what's happening on the ground at the present. He calls them sometimes charlatans because um, the information he says does not match or did not match with those that he collected from his own sources or exaggerated or one-sided. He says these are uh, mainly the fundraising activities that these missionaries, when they went to the United States and give uh, sermons or speeches to raise funds for the public, they exaggerate things. They know that doing so would be more beneficial for fundraising activities. Now, when he reported these things, of course, he became a target for the missionaries in the Ottoman Empire, because by that time, American public opinion, American press, influential uh, historians and diplomats, and also international community were entirely on the camp against the Ottoman, uh, Ottoman state. They had zero sympathy. But Bristol suggested that this does not help the interest of United States and United States needs to know more about the other side of the story. So he did not deny, for example, the killings and the sufferings of minorities as reported in many missionary reports that also went through him. But he also uh, wanted to show the other side of the story. So he went against the grain. His uh, relations with the missionaries and nearest relief uh, workers were not on um, very friendly ground, so to speak. The missionaries tried very hard to remove him from his post. They were not successful because State Department greatly valued his uh, contribution and his reports. He had very detailed reports about everything, even what he dined, what he ate in his uh, dining with uh, the leaders, so on and so forth. So um, he was a very valued U.S. officer, diplomat, in a very tumultuous time in a very unstable region. And the State Department needed this kind of information to make up their opinion about the region. The common interpretation of Bristol is that he was uh, anti-Greek, anti-minority, anti-Armenian and uh, pro-Turkish, pro-Muslim. 
and he was heavily criticised by uh, numerous circles for that. And in fact, he makes a very interesting contrast, a huge contrast with uh, Henry Morgenthau, the ambassador of the US in Constantinople before Bristol, so throughout the First World War period. And uh, Morgenthau had very great distaste, really, for the Turks. And his reports to the State Department during his tenure really painted Turks and Muslims as these kind of bloodthirsty savages, basically, who were very primitive and uh, very dangerous. So following on from Morgenthau, Bristol's perspective must have come as quite a shock in Washington. Yes and no. It was not a shock for them. It was actually, a, we see from the reports of the State Department, Near East Department, for example, of the State Department, that they were happy to see the breadth of information Bristol provided. The contrast between Morgenthau and Bristol is something that I also thought very deep about. First of all, Bristol was not there in 1915. He did not have first-hand knowledge of what happened on the ground then. But Bristol very openly embraces the statements that Armenians in great numbers were massacred and killed. And I would, I would assume if the term genocide existed, he would use it. He wouldn't have any problem using it, what happened in 1915. Now, in the book, I did not want this book to be the major point or major, I don't know, major argument that I argue for or against the Armenian genocide, whether it did happen. And I don't want this book to be used for that purpose because it politicizes it and it, it really diminishes the contribution that I am trying to make for, for the field. But you cannot escape the fact that during his time also the claims of Armenians and especially the Greeks took place. Now, like Morgenthau, he knew that the killings took place. But unlike Morgenthau, he tried to provide the context. And in many places, he did not distinguish Armenian, Turk, Kurd, what he called the Eastern races. He calls them, if you put every all these races into a bag and shake them up and uh, take them out, you would not recognize uh, which one is which, meaning they were all the same. His explanation is that if the Armenians or the Greeks had their chances, they would do more or less the same things and, and the killings would happen. But it happened that it was the Ottoman state had the upper hand and managed to kill many Armenians and, and the Greeks. Why he was looking at that angle is another issue that I tried to... I did not write about this thing in the book because I did not find much information about the distinction between the two. But one important information was that Morgenthau was a Jew, migrated from Germany. And we know that the town, the town he came from, the Jews, they suffered a lot. That's why one of the reasons they migrated to the United States. So he was much more sensitive towards the pain of minorities. And it would probably trigger many emotions in him that he emphasized one side of the story. Whereas Bristol comes from a military background, he is more of a military man. We see that also uh, his uh, appreciation of the Kemalist movement, that he sympathized with the more military background people and more uh, realists, so to speak, so that he would look at, for example, the, the Greek occupation of the Eastern uh, Aegean and the um, landing of Smyrna, for example, and then he would look at the burning of Smyrna, for example, and then collect information that perhaps if it were Morgenthau would disregard and not report it, and uh, he would report those information to uh, the State Department. So their background might have something to do with this. 
that's as far as I went. And I tried to find out if Morgenthau and Bristol had any communication with one another regarding these things, uh, because Bristol was also well published in the United States. And in 1925, he came to to United States and gave talks and Morgenthau was around. But uh, I did not find any of those things. What we know is that um, when they, they wanted to, or the State Department wanted to extend his stay in Turkey, Morgenthau was in support of it. So, and I thought that was uh, quite interesting too, but there, there was no justification. I could not find any statement Morgenthau for or against Bristol. So we get this idea that uh, Bristol was swimming against the tide of the of the times somewhat, you could say. And part of this was also he was very suspicious of the uh, intentions of Great Britain and its allies who were obviously occupying Istanbul, of course, in the first years of uh, Bristol's tenure. So Britain was very unsatisfied with him. They lodged a lot of complaints, as far as I understand it, from the book. And they, you know, obviously labelled him a kind of sympathiser of uh, what for them was the enemy. So just talk about that, you know, what was behind that sentiment that he had against Britain in the first years of his tenure in Istanbul? Yes, he was very suspicious. Well, he became very suspicious when he first came. He wasn't like that. But in the statements that later he sent uh, to Washington defending his position against the British complaints against him and uh, activities to remove him from his post. Not only Great Britain, but also French too. And um, what he says is that uh, Great Britain is not honest in their designs for this part of the world. And in fact, he talks about uh, Great Britain trying to occupy Mesopotamia for oil purposes. And um, he points out that there is and there will be a competition among these Western powers for the spoils of the Ottoman Empire. So-called the old uh, the Eastern, Eastern question is still well and alive. And he actually says that Great Britain and, and France are playing politics for the fate of the people on the ground for their own purposes. So he was very suspicious towards uh, the British aims in the Ottoman Empire. And in the book, we talk about that the United States was trying to be an open, have an open door policy after the war. He did not want only France, Great Britain, and the Western other Western countries to have the uh, the opportunity to invest in Turkey. So he was urging the State Department to consider that the U.S. should be more involved in the region and compete against the British interests. So Great Britain did not appreciate this because he was really sending reports from, let's say, Jerusalem, from Mosul, from different parts of of the region trying to make a point that Great Britain is positioning herself to um, to have more spoils and to have the, the lion's share and exclude other countries like uh, like the United States to, to have the equal opportunity for business later on, so-called the open-door policy. So that is why, for example, he stood against the Armenian mandate. He called it a British trap to uh, to busy United States in this Armenian protecting the Armenian uh, mandate and having an Armenian mandate, whereas uh, Great Britain would have the lion's share of oil-rich territories. So yes, Bristol soon after he arrived in in Constantinople or Istanbul became very suspicious in the in his dealing with the other, especially the uh, British high commissioners. Uh, he also had uh, this taste for the French interests in there too. 
But what we need to know is that at that time, the Allied forces in Istanbul were competing against each other for uh, advancing their own military and economic interest, and Bristol wanted America to be part of it too. Yeah, and it's important, I think, to perhaps reflect a bit on that. When Bristol arrived in Istanbul, the U.S. enjoyed quite a benevolent uh, reputation in the country. Obviously, the U.S. Uh, hadn't participated in these, uh, you know, secret wartime treaties to kind of dissect the Ottoman Empire. So there was a bit of uh, goodwill, actually, towards America in uh, among Turks, among Muslims, and among the uh, the Ottoman authorities. Just reflect on that, you know, how important was that particular position that the US had at the time internationally? How important was that, you know, it was far from the kind of dominant hegemon that it would later become? I think it's quite significant because the United States was, as you said, uh, was regarded as a neutral country, although it's in the other side. The U.S. never declared war against the Ottoman Empire. The U.S. never was part of the secret treaties. So there was a goodwill, not only the Ottoman time, but also the Republican, Turkish Republican time period, that the U.S. could be a trusted ally. Uh, but keep in mind that uh, Bristol was, uh, although he did not have uh, any diplomatic training, he was very able diplomat in the sense that after 1919, as you know, um, there were two governments, there were two groups, the Ottoman administration in Istanbul and also in an alternative so-called rebels, uh, the nationalist, the Kemalist government in Ankara. Now, since Americans were seen as honest people, these two groups were sending their representations to communicate uh, with the Americans, asking for their advice, asking for their help, so on and so forth. So the Ottoman representation, for example, to uh, Bristol, at the same time, the, the nationalists in Ankara would go and give the secrets. They would share it not with the other allied powers or Germany, but with the uh, with American diplomats. So American archives are full with this kind of information, not only the, the subject that I studied, but any area of that time that was once part of the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire. So Bristol was very skillful in extracting information about these people and the future of the Kemalist movement that he, he observed the collapse of one empire and rise of a nationalist Turkey. In that sense, his observations are extremely valuable because he collects much more honest information than, let's say, one can find in British archives. You talk about it there. What about Bristol's attitude towards the nationalist movement in Anatolia under Mustafa Kemal, uh, later Ataturk, of course, and also his later attitude to Kemalist Turkey after 1923? From your book, I understand he was uh, pretty positive about both in his reports. He sort of uh, saw the new Turkey under Ataturk as this uh, kind of enlightened dictatorship, essentially. Uh, he wasn't really naive to the uh, hard edges to it, but uh, he kind of thought that those hard edges were necessary. Is that an accurate reflection of, of what he thought? Yes, definitely. That's what he exactly, that's what he thought. So he was labeled as pro-Turk, but he was not really pro-Turk, so to speak. He, he actually defended himself as pro-American. And in fact, one can say that he was as anti-Ottoman as uh, Morgenthau, because in his earlier writings, we see that this administration should not survive, this empire should not survive. 
But just focusing on that part, uh, one would say that he was an anti-Turk, not even a pro-Turk at all. But if you look at his views of the emerging Kemalist movement, then he really sympathized this movement. As I said, he had a military background and uh, he was a very keen eye on observing the Kemalist uh, movement. Starting from 1919, he was there, for example, the landing of Greeks in Smyrna or Izmir. He reported to the State Department that this it was a greatest mistake the Allies could, could make because they were going to wake the sleeping so-called lion and then they would unite the people in opposition against the Allied powers. He sent those reports and he was adamant about the Greek landing or occupation of, of Smyrna and, and northern Aegean cities. And he predicted that they would lose and this would give a very vital oxygen to the Kemalist movement that would destroy the Greek landing. So this is quite interesting. And he predicted the success of the Kemalists. He was the very first one that predicted this. We have uh, similar reports from uh, French and British uh, ambassadors. They, they, they did not see that. They did not see that the Kemalists would be successful. Starting from 1919, but especially in 1920 onwards, we see Bristol sending reports to Washington asking permission to communicate with the, the Kemalists. And he sends, he opens a back channel to communicate with the Kemalist movements. In that sense, it's very important that he recognize early on the, the success of the Kemalists and established links with the uh, Kemalist movements and the nationalists in Ankara. So much so that this was the base for the U.S.-Turkey alliance in NATO and all the goodwill that came all the way to the present established a very important ground for U.S.-American relations. All these reports and Bristol's foresight of seeing that the Kemalists would be successful and the Ottoman state would collapse and uh, United States should find a way to uh, somehow establish relations, first informal, but then normal relations with the Kemalists. So he admired greatly that this emerging movement would establish a nation that would somehow deal with Greek and Armenians on the equal basis. And he, uh, his prediction, one of which did not come true, was that like those in the United States, somehow assimilate to this new culture, not to be a Turk, but keep their identity, but live in this nature. He was thinking that the people, the Greek and the Armenians and the other minorities of the former Ottoman territories would somehow adapt to the new state and become tied to it on a citizenship basis. He had great confidence that the Kemalist movement would somehow erase the misgovernment of the previous administration, that is the Ottoman administration. So he was hoping that this Turkish Republic, after the Republic was established, I mean declared, would be a great ally of United States and U.S. would invest in Turkey. Mustafa Kemal, he admired greatly. He wrote many reports describing him, but at the same time, he also, one should keep in mind that he reported things about Mustafa Kemal and the Kemalist Republic, for example, that perhaps would not sit well with the, uh, the authorities in Turkey even today. So if people read what he wrote about how he observed the rise of new republic, 
that information somehow contradicts with the grand narrative of the rise of Turkish Republic. So that also one can see that many people, so-called the Kemalists in Turkey, would have issues with Bristol's reports describing the rise of New Republic. So, yes, uh, in a nutshell, Bristol was very fond of uh, Mustafa Kemal, and uh, he, he described that the only way for this state to survive is that someone like Mustafa Kemal, as a benevolent uh, dictator, should take lead, otherwise no one can keep these people together. But he, he, he also complained about the extreme secularist activities of the Kemalist government. Not necessarily the abolition of the caliphate, but in, in one report it says that the Turks gone mad with this secularist uh, ideology and then he just starts ranting about how the Kemalist government did this to him and that and the other. So um, he was a very supporter of the rise of, of this new regime, but he was he did not have any illusions that this is a great democracy. He actually reported uh, many things that, as I said, that contradicts the grand narrative of the rise of Turkish Republic. And despite his uh, relatively pro-Turkish position, throughout his tenure, Bristol still voiced typical sentiments of the time, really. Uh, so he had a pretty, uh, you might say, orientalist perspective, essentializing the uh, characteristics of various ethnic religious groups in the Middle East and in the territories of the former Ottoman Empire, including Muslims. He often talked about, you know, these essential characteristics of races, very often negative. He summarised his attitude towards the people of Anatolia in a letter that you quote in the book from May 1919. He says, quote, these races in the Near East are all very much the same. If you put them in a bag and shake them up, you would not know which one would come out first. And he also said, all the races in this part of the world do not know the difference between falsehood and truth. So far as moral character was concerned, they were very much all alike. With regards to committing atrocities and other outrages, all the races acted very much alike. And it was only the question of which one was in power at any given time. So uh, pretty blunt stuff, un-PC you might say. He seems to have this kind of generalized disdain and cynicism about the entire landscape he was in. Yes, that's right. And uh, that's a very typical of his time and his background in the military. That is understandable. But yes, uh, this is a very essentialist and orientalist view of seeing that part of the world. I mean, when we talk about his sympathy towards, let's say, the Kemalist movement, he would never see them as, as the equal of the Western civilization, so to speak, including Great Britain and, and, and stuff. That That is the mindset that he had. So in a sense, he was trying to describe that they, they are as vicious as one another. So you cannot really identify one group being more vicious than the other one or more educated, more prepared to self-government than the other one. So that's a very good point to, to highlight is that he was not a humanist whatsoever. He was actually, today, today he would definitely be described as an orientalist and despised. But we, we should judge him based on the time period that he grew up and uh, he had his activities uh, with. And this attitude did not did not change at all, despite the fact that he had great admiration of Mustafa Kemal. He would see the Eastern people as somehow inferior to Western civilization. And it's the white man's burden, if you will, to, to teach them how to act in a civilized way. So Bristol remained in Turkey as the uh, High Commissioner until May 1927. So he spent uh, eight years in total, 
And at that point in 1927, diplomatic relations between the US and Turkey were restored at the ambassadorial level. So he came back to the US, obviously. What did he do after his duties in Istanbul? Did he retire from uh, diplomatic service? Do we do we know if he came back to Istanbul or Turkey at any point? What did he do after he, he left Istanbul in, in 1927? Uh, in 1927, when the, the diplomatic relations between United States and Turkey was established, obviously a career diplomat needed to be assigned to then Ankara capital. Bristol then asked to be transferred to Navy, and um, his request was granted. Actually, he knew that he was going to be removed, but he wanted to have an active uh, military duty back in on the sea. And uh, he actually assumed the command of the Asiatic fleet with the rank of admiral. And he went to actually, unlike his post in the Near East, uh, this command was purely a uh, naval command. And um, he went to China, for example. He was the commander in chief of the U.S. Asiatic fleet, but he, he involved himself mainly with the Navy issues, although he tried to somehow uh, use his diplomatic skills to somehow interject himself to Chinese civil war. And uh, he actually, in one report, we know that he communicated, I think perhaps in person he met with the uh, Chinese nationalist leader, Chiang Kai-shek, and Chiang Kai-shek told him that he heard a lot about him and his diplomatic success in Turkey with Mustafa Kemal Ataturk and, and all that stuff. But he did not have any chance or any appointment, so to speak, or order to act in a, in a political or, or in a diplomatic setting. Soon after that, he went back to Washington and then he assumed uh, a post in a, in a board of senior naval officers and then he retired but he he did not go back to turkey but he was very much involved in the groups for example that are friends of turkey in the united states at that time he advised them he communicated with them regularly his brainchild, when he was in his post in Turkey, he established an hospital. Actually, until very recently, that hospital in Istanbul was known as Admiral Bristol Hospital. Now it's an American hospital. They changed the name. They removed his name from it. But he was uh, very active in fundraising in the United States. So he was on the board of that hospital in, in Washington. And he was very much involved in, uh, in Turkey and following the developments in Turkey. In 1939, for a very routine operation, he, he goes to hospital. We know that uh, a letter that he wrote to his nephew saying that tomorrow I'm going to have a very minor surgery. But uh, he did not come back alive from the uh, operation room. So uh, he died in 1939. And uh, we know that um, Turkish government sent condolences to Washington. Uh, he was honored in U.S. He was honored by giving, I think, a couple of um, destroyers, gunboats, his name. And that's the end of his life. He died in uh, a year after Mustafa Kemal died in 1939. That was Hakan Özoğlu. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 159. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go 
go to Taki Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via Twitter or via our Facebook page or of course at our new Instagram account. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or indeed a foe and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter put out by the journalist Diego Cupolo, a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.